Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, Adam Pawatic. We're recording live at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. This is day two. This is episode nine that we've recorded today. So if Adam and I sound a little bit sluggish, Sorry about that, but that is not your problem, Hugh. So don't worry, we'll stay on top of it. Uh, this is actually recorded as part of the Ottawa Real Estate Forum, but we're doing it today because we had some scheduling conflicts and where this was the best way to get us all together recording at one time. So Hugh Gorman, you're the CEO of Colonnade Bridgeport. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Enjoy the podcast. So Hugh, we always love to just set the table, so to speak. How did you get into real estate? What was your career path look like? How did you end up? Did you ever regret it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which morning? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've always been interested in real estate. And when I was in high school, if you can believe it, I had a girlfriend whose dad uh, was, you know, a bit of an entrepreneur and he heard I liked real estate. So he sent me to a Raymond Aaron, how to get rich and be a millionaire in real estate. So that was my introduction to real estate in high school. And it worked. And here I am 30 plus years later. So uh, yeah, I've always just had a really keen interest in it. And I started my career at Candorel as a summer student taking this, I'm going to date myself here, but taking pictures of directory boards to build a database so that we could lease space. That's what I did in university and then started working uh, at Candorel. Started through the leasing operations development side of the business. Candorel was acquired in 99 by Oxford and that's when I joined Oxford. And then I ran our portfolio in Eastern Canada out of Montreal. And then I ran our industrial program for Oxford out of Toronto. And then decided it was time to do my own thing. And started a company called Bridgeport in Ottawa in 2009. And from there, we've grown the business in Ottawa and now have a platform that we're building here in the GTA. And our business is really a, an investment business that does invests in real estate on our own account and on behalf of private equity partners, and we typically are JVing with institutional capital partners. So uh, our model's pretty simple and uh, really kind of boots on the ground platform. And we spend a lot of time digging around, looking for deals and making things happen. So it's, uh, it's still a pretty entrepreneurial company. It's like, roll up your sleeves, <laughs> grab the shovel, let's do this. Yeah. That was taught in the 101 class back in high school. Yeah. Any uh, trepidation about launching in 2009? It wasn't the sunniest of markets then. Well, you know, it's interesting. We formally launched in 09, but uh, actually set up the company and we bought a small syndication business actually in Ottawa in 2008. And in between uh, when I left Oxford and when I started Bridgeport at the time, took a little trip. I'd been on the road quite a bit. Family was in Montreal. I was uh, traveling across the country, working out of Toronto, so commuting back and forth every week. And uh, we just decided to take a tour around Europe with the kids. So took the kids out of school in June went uh, through uh, September and literally sat down in front of a TV the day Lehman went down. And our whole business plan for Bridgeport was there was going to be a correction in the marketplace and Bridgeport was going to take advantage of all the carnage that was out there. So that was the plan. And so I thought I was a genius and we immediately packed everybody up and flew back and kicked things off. And lo and behold, nothing really happened. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should have flown to the States. It might yeah, have been more exactly. opportunity down there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your specialty now, your, your main asset class is multifamily. I know you're in a few of them, but uh, multifamily is your, your bread and butter? On the development side. So again, we've got a real estate operating uh, company, so the services platform, and we're the largest landlord uh, in Ottawa. 
on the office side. Uh, we've got a fair amount of industrial, some retail, and uh, multifamily side is a new part of our business. We started getting into it uh, on the development side, and now we're building out the real estate operating platform since we started development. But our pipeline of development is predominantly in multifamily, correct? And why multifamily over the other asset classes that you've got a, a longer history with? We built the first multifamily uh, project over 100 units in 30 years in 2014. And really what we saw in the market was a real gap, old inventory, no new inventory. It was happening in other markets across the country, but not so much in Ottawa. And we just uh, felt like there was a need. We felt the demand curve was going to be strong. And we just saw a long curve. LRT was going in. There was no transit-oriented development. And so we just focused on established communities, amenity-rich communities that were on transit that didn't have new purpose-built inventory. And as it turns out, <laughs> was a lot of those opportunities in Ottawa. So that's really what we just saw a gap in the market. That's kind of what we do. We're an entrepreneurial business, look for gaps and try and make something happen. So we've gone from one mixed-use building, 141 units, and uh, we've got a pipeline of 2,200 units and 2 billion in development projects in front of us. And all we have to do is now find the capital stack to make it uh, make it all work. So <laughs> easy. Turn the recorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The rest of this podcast, we're just going to talk about finance now. <laughs> Can I give my phone number? You know, yeah, just in yeah, case yeah. anybody's listening. No, 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 no. Just first national. Shh, don't tell anybody. We're not going to release this episode for like six months until you sign all the all the term sheets. Okay, good stuff. I'm I'm game. We're going to hold you hostage. <laughs> sign the term sheet. It sounds opportunistic and. Fortunate too, because we've had a, a number of episodes just recently, and I, I forget who it was. We've had a bunch of these, but all talking about the opportunity to move into Ottawa and how Ottawa wasn't on their radar, but now it is, and they see a lot of potential there. In an otherwise where Toronto and Vancouver markets and some others that are just there isn't, it does that the numbers don't spec out, but they do in Ottawa. I guess that's not really a good thing for you, really, because it means more competition means yields are down. To a degree, yeah, there's no doubt there's more competition than there was, but um, I would say. It's also providing some legitimacy for the market. Uh, capital's coming. It's sophisticated capital. And so I think it's kind of good that it's on the radar, to be blunt, because we're kind of stepping into you know a first-tier market where we weren't before. And so I spent a lot of my time, even at Oxford, we we're trying to build office projects back in the early 2000s. And it was difficult getting the capital, even we had our own sponsor in Omers, but getting them to agree to proceed, I remember... We had a building, downtown Class A office building we were trying to build. We were 65% pre-leased and my counterpart building in Calgary with no leasing. And he got approval to proceed with both phases of his project. And I got sent back to do more pre-leasing. And so how many times do you remind <laughs> that that board, remember when? Show the performance chart of each asset. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we've always been, I've always been very bullish on Ottawa, but you know, it's a bit of a sales pitch. And so the more capital that comes, the more legitimate the market is. I mean, it's known for kind of being sleepy. I don't think that's actually a negative thing because it means stable, but it's also not vibrant, which I, you know, maybe the opposite of sleepy. How do you kind of balance that notion? Well, I think that is a historical view, I would say. And, you know, I don't mean offense by making that statement. I think it's hitting a tipping point, a tipping point that, you know, when I left and came back to Ottawa, so there was 10 years in between, uh, the market started changing. And now we've hit a population density that we used to say we're the biggest small town. And now we're saying we're a big city and we got a bit of big city swagger. It is more stable. There's no question. There isn't the ups and downs that you'd see in specifically Calgary, for example, or even Montreal to a degree. 
we're now starting to see there's a real quality of life. The most highly educated city in the country, the tech sector is booming. The federal government is a stabilizing factor for sure. There's an affordability differential with Ottawa than other major centers across the country. And so the population growth targets that we're projecting in the official plan that was literally just approved, we're going to double that in Ottawa and 2022. So there's a real story there. We've had some of our guests describe their investment strategy as Vectom. Do you know what that is? Have you no, heard that I've before? I've never heard that term. So that's <laughs> Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, oh. Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. And so I'm just saying that because Ottawa's in there, right? Like, it, And maybe it hadn't been before, but it is now. Just, you can't six. spell Vectom without yeah, Ottawa. Right? Well, yeah. It's not Vectom, right? It's Vectom. And I think it's just, it's one of six. There are six major urban investment centers now in Canada. And sometimes Halifax, I guess, if you can put that caveat in there, you're absolutely, I think, on people's radar now, no matter what asset class, no matter who you are, you know, investing in commercial real estate. Yeah, you know, I think there was a time when I was a bit cynical about that because, you know, we saw lots of players come and go over the years that I've been in Ottawa. So they... Like outsiders or local? Yeah, no outsiders coming in, bringing in capital. A lot of the pension fund advisors would come in, build a big platform and then... You know, it's hard to create a lot of value in the Ottawa market because it is so stable. And, you know, I tell a story that when I started in the business, I was involved in the second phase of a downtown office tower, Constitution Square, and we proformed NERs that were kind of 26 bucks a foot and rents that were 24 going to 32. When we built the third tower of Constitution Square in 2006, we were proforming $24 NERs and 26 to 32 net. And rents today are probably 24 to 26 net. So that's over a, <laughs> over a 30-year span. But stable <laughs> is good. We're lenders. We're lenders. We like that. Durability and stability of cash flow is so important. There's not the type of uh, rental rate growth that you see. And so people come and they kind of get bored and they think, okay, I can't move the needle. So they sell and they move on. But I think now it's different. I think this time around it's changed for sure. We do see capital coming with a purpose and uh, are committed to the marketplace. On the, uh, the residential side, I noticed you didn't call Ottawa affordable. You said it's an affordability differential between the, uh, you know, Ottawa and like the worst markets in the country. From, you know, sitting here from Toronto, it's definitely more affordable than here, but it would have its issues with affordability, same as virtually every other major urban center. No question. If you look at the, and the increase in uh, housing prices, as an example, again, Ottawa on a percentage basis has had the greatest growth in the country. Two years ago, it was the average house price was four hundred thousand. It's probably pushing eight hundred thousand now. So it's been pretty dramatic. It has contributed to the affordability challenge that we've got, and we don't have a lot of affordable rental inventory and diverse rental in terms of typology. So yeah, we're, we're facing similar affordability challenges that every other market is seeing. I would say it's not as acute as it would be in Vancouver and Toronto, but definitely there's an affordability challenge uh, in Ottawa. Are you looking at uh, contributing your part to solve that as part of your development strategy? Or the typology issue, either of the two that you identified? <laughs> to be clear, we're trying to figure it out. What we've been building is pretty traditional inventory that's been developed over the last five years. So, you know, high-rise, multifamily, residential. So not a lot of family-style units uh, going up in those projects. So we are actively looking for ways to do lower-density projects and, you know, more efficient approach to construction methodology and things uh, like that to try to address what we think is an opportunity. And so you think of affordability I'm not a big fan of inclusionary zoning. The things that typically policymakers are doing to solve for affordability, I don't think actually puts a dent in it. And it just makes it more challenging on the supply side, which makes the affordability issue a bigger challenge. So I'm pretty opposed to a lot of the things that are happening on that front. I think the market 
and I'm talking about affordable, not supported housing and things like that, but just truly affordable. And I think there's going to be a market opportunity there. And we're going to try and figure out what that is and try to figure out ways to supply that inventory to the marketplace. We've talked at length on this podcast just about all the headwinds, particularly in multifamily development. Of course, rising interest rates, rising costs, labor shortages, land availability, all that. You've got the land, it sounds like. So there's one checkbox. Are you breaking ground right now or are you still a bit hesitant? Yeah, well, we're not hesitant, but typically the way we structure our deals is we look for an institutional partner. And so we're typically 25% of a deal to 30% of a deal, and then the institutional partner will be the balance. I would say the challenge that we've got right now is everybody on the institutional side is pens down. We've got a project that we're hoping and fairly confident we're going to get into the ground in Q1 2023. It's not a huge project, but uh, we're pretty confident. We've got a partner, you know, lined up that we think we can get the shovel in the ground. We're shovel ready and ready to go. But it is particularly challenging on the equity side. Debt's available, but got to be a really capable executor. And you got to make sure that you can really understand the pro forma and make sure that you've you know, got the proper contingency built in, but you've also got the proper mechanics around the relationship with the sub-trades and the constructors. So we're typically pretty active on the construction side of it as a developer, although we're not a construction manager, but we're pretty active. We think we got the cost side sorted. We think we got the debt piece sorted. Our equity is game to go, and it's convincing institutional equity to get going. And we're starting to see the conversation change. In July, August, September, everybody was don't talk to us. You know, we don't even want to spend half an hour having a coffee. And now they're kind of like, okay, let's talk about that project again. So they're starting to think about what's happening is everybody's putting things on pause. Demand is increasing. The housing shortage is acute and getting worse. And the aggressive rents you underwrote eight months ago are now looking more and more achievable. Oh, I think they are for sure. And so, yeah, and we're confident in the demand side. So, you know, on the revenue side of the models, and we think construction timing is going to be great. So, we feel like we've got everything kind of under control right now and we're wise to be bullish and pull the trigger. So that's the message that we're communicating to our partners, our past partners and future partners. And so we're pretty bullish. We're going to be putting more than one project into the ground in 2023. The uh, federal government's talked about dramatically reducing their office imprint in Ottawa. So I want to get your view on that because that's the obvious connection, but then that also impact housing. You know, if people can all of a sudden work from home, maybe they want to be an hour outside of Ottawa because they're only coming in one day a week. So I'd love to hear your view on uh, that change in the market for both the residential and office sector. Well, listen, it's not great downtown Ottawa right now. The feds are half the inventory, the office inventory downtown, and they're not in. And so it's pretty bleak. I come to Toronto on a regular basis and I've seen kind of every time I come every couple of weeks, every time I come the past a little fuller, elevators are a little fuller, like it really starting to feel like people are coming back in. Everybody knows we're going to a hybrid model. That's not going to change. And I think it's going to be three to five years for things to stabilize. To Everybody gets you know comfortable with how they're going to occupy and use space. And it is going to change. There's no doubt. And so I suspect there's going to be less demand over time than more. And the federal government's no different. The challenge we have with the feds is there's no leadership, quite frankly, around coming back to the office, not five days a week, but in a hybrid environment. That's a particular challenge for the Ottawa office market. Because they're not even keeping pace with the rest of the office occupiers are, where everybody's kind of doing the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It seems to be the average out to the norm, but the federal government's not even keeping pace with that level of return to work, correct? Yeah, so our occupant load, not occupancy, but occupant load downtown is the lowest in the country. By In fact, it's the lowest in North America. And so you think about the ripple effect of that on 
you know, small business and things that are downtown, obviously tenants that we've got at grade and, you know, along the street, it's a real challenge for those retailers. And so we've got to think deeply. I'm part of a downtown revitalization task force led by um, Yasser Nakvi, our local MP. He's taking a leadership role, but there's not really any support sponsorship from the government. Lots of union negotiations coming up in 2023. So, you know, there's that kind of gamesmanship going on. And leadership from the large public sector unions who are demanding to be able to work remotely is a pretty short-sighted view in my mind. And I think everybody would agree that some form of being in the office in terms of building culture and just having people aligned in that human connection, that's missing if you're working remotely. You just don't have the same dynamic of a team and be able to create vision and communicate that vision and get everybody kind of in the boat rowing in the same direction. And Some might argue that that's difficult in federal public service. I don't share that view. And so I think we need to see better leadership out of the federal government and the public service union leadership. But I'm not overly hopeful that's going to happen before. I mean, it's really interesting because I know even in our own First Nationals experience, there was, when we did this sort of a survey, the response was, no, we want to work from home. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to come back one day a week anyway. Okay, all right, fine, fine, fine. And then slowly but surely, oh, you know what? I actually, I like this. I was wrong. I like this. Because you almost had to break them of the cycle, right? And we've heard, we've talked about this at length, but one of the most interesting comments I've heard is that, you know, cities exist because human beings ingrained in our nature want to be around each other. Like we would all still be hunter-gatherers or farmers if it wasn't for the fact that we're beings that want to be near each other. And so the office is no different, like generally, right? So curious if the unions are hearing that a little bit now from their constituents saying, you know, maybe we do want to go back. And the union's like, no, 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 don't say anything. We got to negotiate this. So you're almost stuck now waiting for those to take place, right? So listen, I referred to it as gamesmanship. There is that, right? But there's real consequences to real people to take that position. And so I, and listen, I'm biased and we're a landlord and we represent lots of capital that's invested in the marketplace. So clearly I'm biased, but I do think there's a you know, significant impact on the uh, vibrancy of the downtown core is a pretty critical element of the city. So, but again, we're never going to go back to the way it was, but we have to figure out a way to kind of reinvent what we are. So it's a particular challenge right now in terms of the office market. And uh, you asked about residential too. I don't think I really answered that question. But. Well, yeah. I mean, just if people can now live further afield with a decreased demand for apartment buildings in the core, which you might be looking at building. I think there is a bit of a concern. You know, there was an exodus. So you hear of lots of public employees that now live in PEI because they can work remotely and it's their position. They can work remotely from there. Ottawa, as I said earlier, geographically it's spread out, but it's got really strong communities and we're big believers that people want to live in an urban area if the urban area is such that it's got good transit, it's got a good quality of life, it's got good healthcare, it's got good schools. And so we're very bullish on people wanting to move to the city, live there. And as a result, we think the demand curve on the rest side is going to be very strong for the foreseeable future. And there's big investments being made in transportation right now in Ottawa. Listen, the first phase wasn't great and it was a little unpredictable in terms of uh, whether or not it would be running, but... uh, Not when, but just if. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was a little bit of that for sure. But it's growing pains. When I think about it and talk to people about it, anytime you make a massive change in public infrastructure, public transportation... You can't expect it to go without some challenges. So there's lots of headlines, but generally the system works great. And what's happening in the future when they get the second phase done, right now it's kind of 
people joke it's the train to nowhere because it's so short. <laughs> it's in the urban area. And so you're basically going from one end of the urban area to the other, but it doesn't really bring people in from the suburbs. So this second phase, when it's completed in 24 and 25, will make a massive difference in that. It's a huge investment and it's great for the city. We were desperate for that public uh, transport infrastructure. Let's talk about retail. So you do have uh, retail exposure and maybe we can extend that a concept of less federal employees being uh, downtown. What's your view on investment or disposition on retail in Ottawa? Well, I mentioned before the podcast, we're actually selling a couple of suburban centers, small service-oriented, one's food anchor, one not, but it's part of a fund that's winding up. So it was an opportunistic fund that's winding up. So it's neither a comment on Ottawa or retail. It's uh, simply time. It's just time. Yeah, it's just time. And there's liquidity in those assets right now. So um, we were concerned, to be blunt, that there wouldn't be liquidity in the assets, but there is. And again, they're quality assets with quality tenants that are producing a quality income stream, and that's still hard to replicate. And so you would be building it, you know, in today's market conditions. So there's still demand. And where are you in the process now of selling them? One is actually closing in a month, and the other one is under contract. How much interest did it create? Created lots of interest. I would say the list of bidders compared to 18 months ago was like true interest parties was much shorter than it was, but... As the saying goes, you only need a couple. And so uh, a couple of very capable, strong bidders came to the table. And it's like any deal, right? You got to leave something for the next guy. And so we're satisfied with the outcome that we're achieving. And they're going to have a great asset that's going to produce a great return going forward. And was the interest from, uh, same idea, local or, uh, or outsiders? Yeah, outsiders. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there's high profile cases, you know, dreams into Ottawa in a major way. There's a couple of high profile developments and high profile players. I mean, it's great for the market, I think, overall. I agree with you 100%. And I think once we get through a little bit of the COVID hangover, I said I'm not going to use that word anymore, <laughs> yeah. but uh, we've got a bit of that hangover with the federal government. Once we work our way through that, I think we're really poised for the office market to rebound strongly. There's definitely opportunity for residential uh, development. And we don't need a ton more retail, especially kind of regional or super regional shopping centers. We've got enough of those, but certainly kind of service-oriented retail in suburban areas that are growing, definitely going to be demand for that as well. So between us friends here, what are the secret pockets of Ottawa that you're investing in that? <laughs> well, listen, it's not a secret. I mean, we've said it many times publicly in different forums. For us, it's the formula is amenity-rich, established communities. And so, and there's a number of those along transit. And so what we mean by amenity-rich, we want there to be all the services that you need to live your life. And so those need to be walkable for everything that we're, we're looking at. Like to see good schools in the neighborhood. Some employment is helpful, but kind of not critical. And then on transit is the other key element. So people argue sometimes that there's not enough land in Ottawa, but there's, if you dig hard enough, there's lots of land in Ottawa. <laughs> you just got to know who to talk to and where to go to, but look at some transit stops along the uh, LRT uh, website and that's where we'll be. <laughs> when uh, you mentioned amenity rich, is that the surrounding area or how much are you putting into your actual buildings? Typically the surrounding area, right? So uh, we're doing a little bit of placemaking right now on a couple of projects or bigger sites where we're going to have to put some of the, you know, the infrastructure for those amenities to be in there. But predominantly, we're going into mature neighborhoods that are already amenity rich. And so we've been really active in Hintonburg, Mechanicsville, Westboro. We bought a five-acre site with Fiera at the Ottawa train station, just areas that there's a lot going on around, but there's a pocket of opportunity that we think makes a lot of sense. So we've been assembling most of these land positions over the last six years. So it's not like we just 
started doing this a month ago and put all these sites together. You know, we're part of our DNA is digging around. Most stuff we buy is not uh, being marketed. It's just you build relationships, you like a site. And you try and figure out if you can get it tied up. So that's what we do. We did an episode on land earlier today. One of the topics we kind of talked about is you're keeping your pipeline full. You need to be buying now, even if the market's not really looking that appetizing. And it sounds like a lot of people are sidelined until we were told Q3 next year is going to be uh, game on. But that could be an interruption in your I pipeline. I said Q3, so don't, don't take the thing <laughs> yeah, yeah. as a great assault. But anyway, yeah. let's use it. Yeah, he was taking notes. You know, don't, uh, yeah. Who said yeah, Q3? So, yeah. I'm kind of interested. <laughs> yeah. I've just started a whole start of the cycle by <laughs> yeah. rumors. Yeah. Yeah. So are you, I believe in that, you should be buying land now if you want to keep your pipeline intact for three, four or five years down the line? You know, if you've got the type of capital that can sit on land, as we all know, it's the most risky investment you can make because typically it's obviously not producing income. And so you need to have capital allocated for that. But yeah, now's as good a time as any. I would say generally land prices across the country are off what they were a year ago. And if you like the number a year ago, you should like it even more now. So I don't think anybody denies the fact that we've got a housing shortage and there's a need to produce much more inventory. And so if you can find good land positions, now's as good a time as any. And, you know, there was probably at a peak two years ago where the frenzy to buy land was a little bit out of control. You had everybody trying to buy land. We got bid out of a couple of deals and that's when we came to the conclusion we weren't very good at buying things that were on market. I think now's as good a time as any as there has been in the last number of years to buy land. I think we're going to title this episode, Bullish on Ottawa. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, no, and we were running out of time, Hughes. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. You can't talk about, you know, just investment in Ottawa real estate without bringing up the Breton Flats. I mean, that's, and then just only because it's inside Ottawa, I'm not even sure it's that material, but getting headlines and then tie that to, you know, obviously the sale of the Ottawa Senators and the movement of the arena. As an insider, how have you been watching that play out and what's your opinion? Well, watching it keenly, I mean, I, Again, I dated myself, but back when I got in, in the business, we were talking about developing Le Breton Flats. So it's been a conversation for a long time around the city. I think the NCC's finally got their head wrapped around an appropriate master plan for the site. Now they've got to figure out how to get it into the market economically. So as an example, you brought up the Ottawa Senators. The Senators had the entire site tied up the first time around, and they were going to be the active developer of the entire site. Now they've got a seven-acre parcel tied up. My view is... It's going to be difficult to make the arena go with seven acres and have enough development land to support the rink. Is that just because of parking and the ingress challenges of that many people flooding in three times a week or twice a week? I don't think it's that so much as it is that I think you need the other land parcels to make the economics of the rink work. And so you're building a rink, you need to be able to generate some development profit off some of the other uses. And so now they're basically just building a rink in a couple of towers. I whoever's the new buyer. And I suspect I don't have any insight on who the new buyer is. The people that I would say are going to buy it is, you know, the same people you read about in the newspaper. But I think they're going to need more land to make that rank development economic. And so I'm a big proponent of the NCC carving out some more land for the eventual owner of the senators. They obviously need to come downtown. Everybody's excited to see that happen. And it'll be a huge catalyst for Le Breton. So I'm very hopeful. You think about any G7 country... <laughs> from the top down and you see this big piece of land in the middle of the city connected to the river, uh, connected to Gatineau, connected to transit, and there's nothing on it, you realize something's got to happen there. And so I'm very 
hopeful <laughs> that the team trades to somebody that's got, you know, a vision and is prepared to develop and the NCC cooperates with them. Hey, we're almost out of time, but I'd love to hear your closing thoughts on what's new and exciting in your world over the next couple of years. Well, there's, we've got a number of things on the go. We talked about the pipeline. We're pretty excited about getting that into production. We're in the process of raising a fund that we're going to close uh, early in the new year. It's a fund of private equity investors. So we're not raising institutional capital, but it's just a way to more efficiently package our part of the capital stack. So that's going to allow us to get our side of the capital stack ready to go as we bring on capital partners for these projects, get the pipeline ongoing. So we've got a bunch of new people in the business. I'm particularly excited. I've hired a COO so I can go do the stuff that I like to do, which is real estate and spend a little bit more time, you know, on the capital side and on the development side. And so pretty excited about that. And we're looking to grow our platform here in the GTA. So uh, we've had great fortune to have great partners and clients that uh, have brought us here. Trying to build out what we built in Ottawa over the last 10 years. We're trying to build that out in Toronto. So we've got lots to do uh, over the next little while <laughs> at a market that's not super cooperating. So it uh, will be busy in 23 for sure. I love the vision. Hugh, thanks for spending time with us today. It's been great. Of course, thanks to First National for uh, powering the podcast and the Toronto Real Estate Forum for giving us the opportunity to sit here today. And uh, Thanks to Toronto for allowing us to talk about Ottawa. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we discuss the conversation we just had with Hugh Gorman. You know, I was familiar with Colonnade Bridgeport, but not terribly familiar. And what a smart individual, what a well-spoken individual, and the strategy of, we kind of do whatever makes sense. I love that strategy. Yeah, rather than, well, our target is 20% multifamily and never exceed or go below that. It's, yeah, just we look for opportunities and execute on them. The discussion on the size of his pipeline was a little eye-opening. That's quite a bit bigger than I thought it would be. Yeah, 2,200 units. The whole idea that he's sticking to a one geography that he understands, understands very, very well. We'll go and do different asset classes. We'll partner with different equity partners looking for creative capital stacks. It just resonates with me. It's like, this makes sense, right? Because he wasn't saying, oh yeah, we're tired of auto. We're going to this place. We're doing that. And I'm getting into data storage. He mentioned Toronto, obviously, is his next market, but that's not a big lateral shift to come four hours down the highway over to Toronto. No. It's not jumping into some market where you don't know any players and it's a completely different universe, different regulatory frameworks, of course, in a different province, none of that. That's a pretty easy transition. Well, probably for the same reason that a lot of the Toronto players are also driving in the lane going the opposite direction over to Ottawa to do deals. Well, and I bet you it's just a lot of his capital partners are Toronto-based. And so he's just, well, I like doing business with you. And they're like, I like you deploying my capital for me. So they go, can you do it in Toronto? Yeah, sure. I'll do it in Toronto for you also. It's probably that natural. The disposition of the retail was interesting too, because at first we're like, he mentioned that before we hit record and we're like, ooh, juicy, selling <laughs> yeah. stuff. And then it was, <laughs> wah, wah. like he just made sense, winding up a fund and we've kind of maximized what we can do with these particular assets, but they're good assets and they have good demand. So Not you know, proclaiming retail is dead. To be totally clear, Aaron and I, our advocates for retail is definitely not dead. No, but course. yeah, when he said that, I was like, oh, that could be a juicy line of conversation if that is his position on retail. But no, it was just time, which I guess, be the, you know, when he's talking about when he's acquiring and developing assets, it's just the right real estate at the right time. And this, of course, on the backside of that is also now just the right real estate to sell at the right time, not a view on retail. All right, everybody, that is it for the Hugh Gorman After Show. Thanks to Hugh for spending time with us. And thanks to everybody for listening until the very end. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. 
First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.